Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Hey, before we get to this book, I just want to say that last week we asked people to subscribe and like and do all that stuff. And we have a number of new subscribers uh, on YouTube and on Podbean. And I'm sure there's a way to find out like where we have <laughs> subscribers on like other things, too. And I don't know how to do that. But thank you for uh, for subscribing. We really appreciate it. So if you haven't, I encourage you to do what these fine folks did just last week. You're watching on youtube like this video hit subscribe leave a comment if you're doing uh the listening anywhere else uh figure out whatever version of it is on that app and please do that for us it helps bring other listeners to the podcast yeah especially with the the services like apple podcasts and uh even spotify google Podcasts, those places it's the rank the the ratings and the the comments so ratings and comments put us into the algorithm so that more people see us so please definitely do that um i saw one very positive um uh rating from the apple podcast recently and the person said that it's the absolute best podcast they've ever listened to um i don't remember who it was but they had kind of a romanian name so um just be like that person and um and that'll definitely help us out a lot that's right be like a romanian <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, enough of that. Let's go on to this week's book. So this week we're reviewing The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. I want to start by saying uh, thank you on a personal note to Stephen, who actually sent us signed copies of the ARC. Now, we've had them for months and months because this had an original release date of April. And that was pushed back to this month, which then collided with some other release dates. So we are about a week and a half late on reviewing this. Um, but thanks to Stephen for sending these beautiful signed copies out. And also, uh, just as Livia said, um, we're a little bit behind on reviewing this, which means the book is out now. So um, you don't have to. Maybe you're listening to this in your car. Just go to the bookstore right now and buy a copy while you listen to us review it. There you go. All right. Enough gratitude. We've been nothing but gratitude the first five minutes of the show. Yeah. It's making my skin itch. So let's go into <laughs> let's go into what we normally do. Here is the bio for Stephen Graham Jones. Stephen Graham Jones has been an NEA Fellowship recipient, has won the Jesse Jones Award for Best Work of Fiction from the Texas Institute of Letters, the Independent Publishers Award for Multicultural Fiction, a Bram Stoker Award, four This Is Horror Awards, and has been a finalist for the Shirley Jackson Award and the World Fantasy Award. He is the Ivana Baldwin Professor of English at the University of Colorado Boulder. I would think he'd be the Stephen Graham Jones professor of English. <laughs> he's 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 teaching there under an assumed name, and he yeah. just outed himself. <laughs> yeah, could be interesting. Or it could be like a honorary seat, like a, a very a special place in the in the faculty or something like that. I might have believed that, but then I finished this book, and I'm not so sure anymore. Can I just I I want to say that. Um, now that I see that This Is Horror Awards is big enough to be put into an author bio, um, it's going on my LinkedIn because I've got a couple of those myself. <laughs> so it's going yes, on my LinkedIn. That's true. It's I'm going to talk about it when I'm like talking to girls at bars and stuff. Is there are there any updates on this year's This Is Horror Awards? <laughs> the silence is suspicious. <laughs> like we we discovered that when you don't hear. It usually means that you didn't get it because they like reach out in advance and ask you to like prepare mm -hmm. like an acceptance statement. And we have, ha I haven't, I don't know if you have, I haven't heard anything back. I have not. 
Um, <sighs> so the voting closed on May 30th, which is just about two months ago. Yeah. So, any rate, well, Stephen was Stephen even nominated this year? I don't believe he was. I don't think he had anything out in time. Well, he, it, yeah. it would have been for 2019, so no, he didn't have anything no. out for that. All right. Any rate, we'll update you as soon as we hear something on the oh, yeah. This Is Horror Awards too. I'm preparing my it, "It's a rigged" statement mm-hmm. for when we we yeah. find out who beat us. Um, that all that being said, back to the book. We don't want to get too distracted. Um, Here's the synopsis for The Only Good Indians. A tale of revenge, cultural identity, and the cost of breaking from tradition in this latest novel from the Jordan Peele of horror literature, Stephen Graham Jones. Seamlessly blending classic horror and a dramatic narrative with sharp social commentary, The Only Good Indians follows four American Indian men after a disturbing event from their youth puts them in a desperate struggle for their lives. Tracked by an entity bent on revenge, these childhood friends are helpless as the culture and traditions they left behind catch up to them in a violent, vengeful way. All right, let's start at the top of the synopsis. This thing about the Jordan Peele of horror literature. (laughs) I'm going to strongly disagree. Do you know why I'm going to strongly disagree with this, Because you don't like anything that Jordan Peele does. (laughs) Because Stephen Graham Jones has yet to ruin the Twilight Zone. And until he does that, he cannot be the Jordan Peele of anything. Oh, yeah. That that garbage got a season two. That's the astonishing part. Um, I'm pretty sure that I saw Stephen posting that he was enjoying it. Or oh. it could have been Mallerman. It was one of the yeah. authors that we, we we run with. They should they should watch the original series. They sh- yeah. Well, I mean, everybody should, right? Wouldn't that be your... I mean, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm implying that they haven't if they like the new yeah. one, that they maybe they haven't seen the original series. Now, this does um, harken back to when we reviewed Wonderland, and um, it was that whole uh, The Shining meets uh, uh, whatever yeah. mm-hmm. kind of thing where it's like you're trying to compare something in order to give it context. Yeah. That, honestly, like... Uh, <sighs> In this particular situation, um, I, I don't like the comparison because I, I think it minimizes the impact or contribution that Jones has made over the years, in a way. Or it's just a bad it's a bad parallel to draw. Maybe I I, I mean I'm gonna I'm gonna go into this again. I know we just did this like three weeks <laughs> ago, but to me it always somewhat degrades. The, the story or the person that you're trying to clearly prop up on some other stories yeah. back. You know what I mean? Or in this case, Jordan Peele. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just not a fan of it. Like, you know, oh, yeah, sure. You know, I, I tell people we're the we're the Joe Rogan experience of book reviews. Right. <laughs> but that's different. That's a different thing altogether. I would just never say. Yeah, I would just never do that. That's I don't know. It, it bothers me. What I will say, the positive spin I'm going to put on this is I'm happy that Stephen Graham Jones is at the level of acclaim that people are drawing these poorly worded comparisons to other people because it means that, like, yeah. people believe in him and, like, he's he's getting strong promotion out there. Um, yeah, I, I, but I'm just with you on the road to hell is paved with good intentions or whatever, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't so. know, man. All right. Sidetrack number three done. Yeah, I know. We're really off, getting off to a great start here. 
the only good Indians. Um, we're going to talk about this kind of broadly from a story standpoint, um, and there's not a lot that we could go into that wouldn't be spoilery. So um, from the synopsis, uh, there is a four American Indian men who 10 years ago, so from now 10 years before, we're reading the now 10 years before, um, the four of them embark on a illegal hunting trip. Um, when I say illegal, they are um, uh, on the reservation, uh, which they, you know, they they belong to. But apparently, and, and I, you know, again, culturally, I learned some things from this book. The wildlife area where you can hunt, there is a portion that's dedicated just for the hunting um, where the elders can hunt. So they are teenagers, um, but they're screwing around. They know there's good elk there. It is the end of the season. And they're looking to, to bring home some meat for uh, for friends and family um, just a few days before Thanksgiving. Um, and they manage uh, to maybe overdo it a little bit. <laughs> so basically, they're out in this area they're not supposed to be hunting in. And the best possible scenario pops up where just like this great amount of elk, um, you know, is there for them to hunt. And they just really honestly, they just kind of like go nuts and start killing elk. I think that like... There's a number in the book. I don't remember because I read that part a while, a, a, a bit ago, like 10, they kill, they managed to kill a good, a good amount of them. Um, and they go down to start, uh, dress like, what well, I don't even know. I don't know hunting terms, but like when you cut them Is open and field, field dressing, field dressing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, and one of the characters, Lewis, uh, had shot, but managed to not fully kill, um, a female elk, a cow. And, um, so she's struggling and, and still alive and in pain. And so he does uh, what the hunters would do. I'm imagining and, and tries to put her out of her misery by shooting her again and believes she's dead. Long story short, it takes another shot before it fully goes down. And, um, he discovers it was pregnant. And so like, there's all this guilt that's washing in because, um, a, the kill was, was pretty ham handed and not, not a clean fast kill. So he feels bad about that, but also like, you know, it was going to have a baby and everything. And so, uh, and they're all, and on top of that, all they've already, they're already hunting somewhere where they're not supposed to be. So they're just like, everything they're doing is, is kind of contributing to him not feeling very good about it. And he makes a promise to this dead or dying elk that he, uh, will honor it by using all of all of it, and the complication to that is um, a they're not supposed to be there. They're worried about being caught by like the game warden and stuff. Um, but b the snow is like crazy, and and so there's the the threat of getting stuck or or whatever. So their plan for the bounty of elk that they they killed would be like to take to do the quickest thing possible. This guy is ready to like get down and break this you know, elk down to all of its bits and carry it all with him. So that like skin it and stuff so that he can honor it by using all of its pieces. And we fast forward 10 years um, to follow up on these guys. So here's kind of where we'll, we can talk a little bit more about the characters. Um, we have Ricky boss ribs. Um, he's not with us too long. He's actually the, the very beginning of the story. He dies in a, in a kind of odd circumstance outside a bar in, uh, was it North Dakota? Is that where he was? Yes. I feel like he was in North Dakota in North Dakota where he stopped, um, as kind of like a migrant guy on his way somewhere else, picked up some work. Um, he 
doesn't do so well and, and dies in that uh, in that outside the bar. We have Lewis, who Rob already mentioned. Um, we, we spent a lot of time with Lewis. Uh, he has also moved away from the reservation. Um, he lives uh, he lives with a white woman, uh, and they've been living their life. He's got a job at the post office, and and you know they're they're doing okay. He's he's living a pretty a pretty happy life. And then back on the reservation, we have Gabe, um, who has a daughter, um, but is really kind of a, a troubled guy, like never really broke out of the the getting himself into trouble and committing, you know, petty crimes and, and stuff like that. And finally, we have Cassidy, who has, um, I don't know, seems like like he's he may have done the, the, the best for himself. He's kind of turned his life around, too, and, and is just kind of living a decent life on, on the reservation. So I want to take the time right now before we dig deeper into the individual characters' stories um, in the present day to acknowledge that the the book um, format is a little bit interesting because uh, there are several sections in the book, and depending on what section you're reading, you're looking at the life of different characters. So um, while you have all four of these characters as being like the original hunting party um, and the ones that are in trouble from the synopsis, um, you don't really see them all together uh, in the in the present day. Uh, like Livia said, Ricky, we see him at the very beginning of the book. There's a good chunk of the book that deals with Lewis, and then um, another good chunk that deals with um, Gabe and Cass at the same time because they're both still on the reservation. So it follows people based on kind of location because they, they, they're spread out a little bit. Uh, so... That's one interesting thing, and uh, what I will say is that the the section that deals with Gabe and Cass um, is the only section where we really see things from multiple character perspectives. You got the perspective of Gabe, the perspective of Cass, and the perspective of Gabe's daughter. So while the format of the book is not super consistent, it's not something that ever for me caused any problems with me understanding what was going on in the story. It's just a kind of a unique setup. And it makes sense when you look at it as like, well, we're going to look at this person who went this one way. Then we're going to look at this other person who went this other way. And then we're going to look at these other dudes who stuck around. Um, so that's kind of the format of how the book is, is book plays out. Nice job. Did a nice job. on that. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I think for the most part, and without going too far, we're probably going to cover some of Lewis's story, and I think that'll give you kind of a good idea of what you're going to, um, you know, what the story is about. So, mm-hmm. as mentioned, um, Lewis lives with his wife, um, uh, Peta. Um, she's an air traffic controller. He works at the post office. Uh, they live, you know, in a small little town, uh, not a ton of neighbors, you know, uh, around. They've, they've got a little house and a garage right by some train tracks. And uh, Lewis has some, you know, some post office friends that he, he hangs around with. And there's one in particular we should probably talk about. It was a great character, I thought, was uh, Shaney. Um, Shaney is the only other American Indian that works at the post office. Um, she's fairly new, so, of course, she gets thrown with Lewis. Uh, Lewis is training her. And, you know, I, there's actually a point in the book he said this has happened to him a lot is whenever there's another Indian around. They almost always get like kind of forced together, um, and that's happening. But we're really not sure. It it, it seems like um, like Shaney may be looking for a little more from Lewis than than Lewis is looking for from Shaney. Uh, you know, if you get my drift. 
Um, yeah. So he's picking up signals from her. He's happily married, and and it's very obvious from the way the story is told that like that's kind of the last thing on his mind. But um, yeah, I, I really like the Shaney character. She uh, she kind of like stirs things up a little bit in a, in his life that is kind of up until around that time seems to be a pretty normal thing. Um, so she's definitely one of the better characters in the book, especially as it, as it moves into stuff we probably won't talk about. There is a moment in Lewis's story, which is, is the signal. It's the, it's the beginning of, um, it's the first thing you read that makes you think, Oh, something's going on. This dude might be in danger. He's, um, he's in his like living room or whatever up on a ladder trying to fix a light that's always going on and off for no reason and he sees on the floor and i might be getting this not exactly right but this is the essence of it he sees on the ground from where he's standing he's looking down the elk that he killed um on the ground like through the spinning like uh blades of the ceiling fan and everything and it freaks him out uh because there wasn't supposed to be any elk on his floor, but it's this, you know, it's very obviously like, <laughs> that's the one. And um, he sees it and it freaks him out. And uh, he almost, like he's like, the ladder starts to wobble or fall or whatever. And he almost falls and hurts himself. But that's when his wife came home at the, the just right moment and stabilized him and, and saved him. So he could have died when he freaked out seeing an elk on the, on the ground. Um, but she saved him at the last moment. And then... Uh, so from there, from that freaky moment, he's trying to figure out why he saw it. He's trying to figure out what it means. Um, and he's obviously pieced together that it might like the only thing that it seems to make sense is that it has something to do with that elk that he killed all those years ago. Um, but it's making him very like, not necessarily paranoid, but like worried. And, um, it really drives, him in a new direction, I guess, is the best thing I could say about it. Yeah, it's uh, it's the um, first thing that happens in a series of odd events in Lewis's life. I think that's probably all we can say um, <laughs> on that. And then, um, as mentioned before, we have the other characters uh, at the um, reservation that, um, you know, I in, in some ways have to deal with similar things. I mean, it's, it's so tough to talk about a story like this without letting it unfold on its own. So I think right. suffice it to say, kind of go over it again. Um, there's a uh, Cass and Gabe who were the friends of Ricky and Lewis, who are also part of this, uh, this poorly handled hunting expedition. And then the only other character of, you know, that I guess really needs mentioning is Denora, who's Gabe's daughter. And she's, you know, 14 ish basketball star. So, but yeah, all of these people have to deal in some way with consequences of this thing that these kids did 10 years ago. Right. And so I think that we're going to back off of details of the story and just talk in general a little bit about uh, some stuff. Um, so what, one thing that I, I think that I really appreciated about the book was, that it has kind of a, a dichotomy of the people that were following these four American Indian men who were part of the uh, the hunt all are very soundly rooted in like their modern like culture 
which um, it, it seems, it feels very removed from more of the spiritual um, historical culture that like, you know, you could think of or is even mentioned, but it also does acknowledge through, of course, like, you know, this entity bent on revenge and stuff that like, yeah, there could be something to uh, the historical cultural aspect of their lives as well. And so it do, it balances those two pretty well. It also introduces um, what it's like, I guess, that culture up against the white American culture and like the uh, and obviously like that's kind of the acknowledgement of what the the title of the book is, The Only Good Indians, um, which is kind of acknowledged later on in the book. But like so you have this contrast of like white American culture versus um, the American Indian culture. That's, you know, the Blackfeet culture and the, the crow is the other um, culture that's vaguely talked about, um, but also like their modern culture versus their historical culture. All of that is really well kind of balanced throughout the story. Yeah, it's it's an interesting take because I was thinking quite a bit about that um, through the course of the book and how. So depending on how these these men were raised. Right. So how traditionally they were raised. I mean, I think this happens to anybody who say who's, you know, second generation of any culture. Right. So family goes to another country. Right. The kids grow up in, in the in the current climate. And, and, and I think by and large try to take a step away from their own um, their own historic culture. Right. Or meld it into something that's a little bit of both. And I think what you're talking about balance, I, I think that really showed in this book, like what things were taken um, seriously from their own tradition and what things were let fall to the the wayside. There's um, there's a great part in the book where they're doing a sweat. I, I think I'm saying that right. Yep. Which essentially they go sit in a hot tent and, and, and perform a series of of um, of steps as a a way to kind of cleanse the spirit and like clarify the mind and stuff. But even in that they're doing the sweat, but they're not really doing it really that traditionally, you know what I mean? So again, it's kind of this, this mix of yesterday and this mix of today that I think really kind of exemplifies what, what you were saying. Like they're trying to do the right thing by their heritage, but they're kind of doing it in a very more modern um, way. Right. Like, so a great example would be at one point, um, they're talking about like, oh, I don't have any drums, and someone's like, well, I've got tapes, and they're and so like, instead of actually yeah, making exactly. their own music during the sweat, they just it plays over a PA from a car, like, uh, so, mm -hmm. um, it, yeah, it just yeah, exactly, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So good, yep. yeah, good, no, good stuff, and and it was interesting because I thought it has to be hard to be kind of torn in some way between tradition. And modern, and it's not necessarily addressed like you know how how they were raised, like how traditionally they were raised in in the Indian culture. Um, but I was thinking a lot about how difficult that. I mean, I, I'm a first generation American born, right? But there wasn't a ton of like Romanian culture going on in my house outside of like meals. You know yeah. what I mean? But it, it's yeah, it's got to be tough to 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 be in a situation where you're kind of you know expected. To be traditional but you really just want to be like everybody else around you is right and and okay. so like the, the the example in your life that comes to mind is um there was i can't remember what it is but like when you were explaining the whole like 
you you get candy in your shoes thing, which mm-hmm. is which yeah. is something that you grew up with in your mm-hmm. American life, but it's a it's it's a part of like your historical heritage or whatever. For sure. Yep. Like in my mind, I'm like that's fucking crazy. So like in your life, at some point, someone probably made fun of you for that aspect of your life, and so you have mm-hmm. to question like how much do I care about this? How much do I want to fit in with society? Like that type of thing. I care about candy a great deal. That's, <laughs> don't care if it's in your shoes. That one. I don't give a shit where it is. <laughs> um, so that's what he does great is he illustrates to you probably what realistically um, modern life is for, you know, if you're Blackfeet or if you're whatever, um, the contrast between the different cultures that you're living in and experiencing and, and, um, having to form your opinion on or, or, or figure out what you what you value or what you think is valuable in your life. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to talk about before we go do spoiler talk, which I'm really excited about. So I could say things like, Ooh, I couldn't believe that happened. <laughs> um, I'm dying to do that too, but I, I just want to acknowledge really quick that we haven't really talked about the creepy or the horror aspect of this book. Um, and so it bears at least mentioning like this is, I mean, Stephen Graham Jones does a great job of, um, creeping you out and, and sometimes kind of grossing you out. And there's no lack of that in this, in this book either. Um, and I think that talking about it to any real extent would spoil stuff. So we'll probably dig into that more in the spoiler side of things. But like, there were definitely some parts of this book where I was, I was pretty creeped out and, um, even so at one point um i had read about 25 percent of the book and livius had got farther than me and he just texts me and says like have you gotten any further in the book or something along those lines and but didn't say anything about it because i told him i was still like where i was and then later in the book i got to a point and i was like this is definitely what he was messaging me about because it was like mm-hmm. that disturbing so there are parts in the book where it's like ooh, holy holy hell yeah for sure for sure. And we're going to talk about those over on Spoiler Talk. <laughs> For the uninitiated, Spoiler Talk is where we go to talk about all the things we can't talk about here. So wide open discussion on the ending of stories, the middle of stories, specific characters, specific events. Um, we do it uh, for two reasons. First of all, we reward our Patreons with that extra talk in the event that they have read the book and want to listen or have no intention of reading the book, but still want to listen to like, what wound up happening and what we thought about it. Um, the other reason is we can't do it here because we try to review books kind of as they come out. And uh, we assume some people listen who might want to read this book and hearing that at the end of this book <laughs> would probably ruin it for them. So um, so we go do that at uh, patreon.com slash booked. All right. We are back from a a very fun spoiler talk. This was one where we got to just talk about some of the the surprises and and stuff that popped up in the book and uh especially with a book like like a jones book um there's a lot of details to pick into that um like it you know we one person might miss it the other one picked up on it so we can share them with each other so like there was a lot of that going on of just like sharing observations and stuff um so definitely a productive conversation over there all right i am going to kick off the wrap-ups on this one. Um, I think I've read 10 Stephen Graham Jones books. Um, I, I still uh, 
I still haven't read all the beautiful sinners, which I know if you're a Stephen Graham Jones fan, you're probably asking yourself, how the fuck is that possible? I've addressed it previously on other episodes, so I won't go into it. Um, up until now, um, the night cyclist has been my favorite thing that I've read from him. I, I mean, I really liked Mongrels. I really like zombie bake off. Um, this, and it's probably gonna take me a little while to let this one settle to make a decision, but it could be my favorite Stephen Graham Jones book, um, for a couple of, of reasons. Uh, the one thing that's missing, I think from the synopsis is the word unconventional. So if you're listening, if someone from, uh, who, uh, who published this book, Saga Press is listening, take out that Jordan Peele stuff and put in there unconventional horror novel. Um, because I mean that in multiple ways that I don't want to go into because I don't want to spoil it. We talked a little bit about how it's structured a little differently, but there's there's some things going on here that are unconventional. And one of the things that I said over in spoiler talk was there are parts in this that that shouldn't be that just shouldn't be as good as they were. They just shouldn't. They shouldn't. And they are. And it's because he he takes an unconventional approach to things, which he's done probably in everything I've read by him. But in this book, it really stands out because it's a big story. Um, because it covers, I think, a pretty big kind of subject, maybe. I don't even know if I'm saying this the, the way I'm thinking it in my head. But all I can say is there are some parts in here that are absolute standouts, not just among Jones' work, but amongst all horror novels. Um, there's some stuff that goes on with Lewis that I think is just got damn brilliant and in and, and some of my favorite um tense scenes maybe in books ever of all the books i've read um the characters are good i like the cultural insight um that that we got um it was delivered as i think rob put it best there's just a great balance um of what's delivered in it and the book's pretty genuinely spooky and again at times i kept thinking to myself this this doesn't this, this shouldn't be as good as it is like if i wrote it down on paper if I try to explain it to somebody, they wouldn't get the same as reading the book. Like, I, I, I couldn't do it justice by trying to tell you or anybody what takes place in this book. Um, overall, on the eight um, different uh, categories we rate it, I averaged out to a flat nine on this one. I really liked it a lot. All right. Uh, yeah. Um, this is, I, I brought up our little database earlier, and I want to say that this is our ninth review of a Stephen Graham Jones book, maybe 10th. I'm not sure. Um, and we've liked them all, I think for a variety of reasons, but there's always that thread of, um, the intelligence, um, the skill, uh, that he writes with, um, and, and just like the fact that he elevates things, uh, beyond what you would expect it to. And he did that again, but kind of in a different way than I'm than usually like, so Jones with um, the lease of my scars took serial killing in a direction that like I never anticipated. And it made the story amazing. Um, the same thing, like uh, Olivia's mentioned zombie bake off with zombies. He innovated several different things that I'd never read before. And with this one, I feel like um, the elevation was just, uh, it, it was more, s- like structural almost like the way that he told the story was, and I'm going to use a word. I think Livia said unconventional, but in a way that was like unexpectedly uh, effective. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of echoing some of the stuff that Livia says, but it just has to be said this book 
is nothing like I expected it to be on on multiple levels, but in a very good way because it pays off massively. One thing I'll observe that we didn't talk about in the review, and I don't think Olivia's addressed, is that I think that it's probably one of the more approachable uh, Jones books that someone could start out with because, I mean, on an extreme example, Demon Theory was so dense and just there was so much going on and it was it was easy to, to get confused or lose the momentum, um, but not in a way that it made the book bad. It was just, it was harder to approach. Um, so, and then with, with subsequent Jones books, you know, there's always, there there tends to be moments where it's like, the concept is so big that it takes a little bit to get to approach it. And, and I feel like this book um, is easier to, to digest and, and jump into and get a real good feel for um, everything that's going on. So that I think is, is definitely a benefit. So it's different than, than what I usually expect from a Jones book. Um, but in a way that is, is just so beneficial to the overall story. I loved the characters. I think that the character development was, was one of the strongest parts of the book. Um, and even we didn't talk about, so like there's Denora is one of the characters in the book, but like, she's got like a stepsister who was her inspiration for wanting to do basketball. And that character, you really could like even feel like what that character is and why they're important in the very small amount of time, like maybe a matter of pages that that character exists. So developing characters was definitely a benefit in this book. Um, I, I thought the conclusion was awesome. It really tied into the overall kind of message behind the greater story, which we really can't get into, obviously spoilers and the way he fucking wrote it, man. Like it's just so good. Um, it's got like a lot of his hallmark, you know, pop culture references and, um, kind of a casual, loose style um, that is kind of his signature thing, whether you like it or, or with, with Livia, sometimes don't like it so much. Um, but th- yeah, the way he wrote it was just amazing. And obviously, uh, from everything I've said, you know that I really enjoyed this book. And um, it actually kind of ties Mallory for scores for me. I came out at 9.25, which puts the podcast average rating for this book at 9.125 which i think makes it the second or third highest rated for the year in a tough month too by the way yeah really tough month. yeah so um um, yeah for sure i want to say i I do want to add on rob and i have talked about this before um jones definitely has a voice and i equated it to this so if you're a if you're a hard rock (laughs) you know, heavy metal, whatever music fan, you you might understand this. Let's pretend that I just unearthed a 25 year old ACDC song that no one's ever heard. (laughs) If you're a fan of that type of music, you already know what the song sounds like. Like by 15 seconds in, I wouldn't have to tell you who it was. You'd be like, man, this sounds a lot like ACDC. That's what reading a Jones book is like. I told Rob that if he handed me a book that was just open to page 25 and I couldn't see the cover or whatever, I doubt I'd get two or three pages in before I was like, this is Stephen Graham Jones book, isn't it? And that's, uh, yeah, he's got that style. And like you said, sometimes it works really well. Sometimes maybe not as well, but it's his. And and it's definitely 
Um, it's easy to identify you're reading a Jones book. <laughs> but the other thing I wanted to mention, because you brought it up, Demon Theory and All the Beautiful Sinners were both very early in his publishing career. Right. I almost wonder if he backed off a little bit off the, the uh, what I'll say is, you know, hard to understand. Um, like, the so Demon Theory was like a high lot of concept work. stuff. And uh, that's why I backed out All the Beautiful Sinners at one point. I think I was like 75 pages in, and I was like, I fucking completely have no idea what's going on. And at that point, I, I, I put it down. And I walked away from it and I still want to go back and read it. I don't, I mean, obviously I'm a little more mature than I was then. Maybe I've matured as a reader. I don't know, but I'd still like to go back to it. But I do remember having that. How am I this far in the book? No concept of what's happening. Just none. Zero. Yeah. And in some places, you know, demon theory was like that too. And I wonder if he consciously backed away a little bit from, from that type of writing. Or just, like the style naturally evolved or something possibly. Um, yeah, I'll agree. Demon theory. Like, so, and I, I could be wrong, but I feel like it's, it's forgivable to not understand everything that went down in demon theory, <laughs> but yeah. still say you enjoyed the book. Whereas with this one, it's like, you don't have to worry about that because it all, it all comes out. All right, before we navigate away from this, and I don't want to make a big conversation about it, but there was just, this is kind of more uh, entertaining than anything. I, I, I happened to, to catch somehow on the social media um, a one-star review for The Only Good Indians on Goodreads. Um, I won't say what the, the um, I won't say their name, but anybody who has Goodreads can go find this. And I'll just read, I'll read the whole thing because it's pretty short. Um, the very title of this book is problematic. The only good Indians, Indians is all capitals. It's disrespectful to refer to indigenous people as Indians. Native Americans are not Indians. Only South Asians are Indians. Please stop using an outdated and historically inaccurate, inaccurate term introduced to people by Columbus from when he thought his ship landed in the East Indies. Natives, Native Americans, indigenous people, indigenous Americans, first people, there are so many terms for natives, yet you chose the one thing not to call them. And then there's like a litany of responses saying, like, do you really just not get what, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. So, um, yeah, I did. I did not see that. Um, and I, I've almost never on Goodreads, I guess. Um, I, you know, so the first thing I want to say about that is I don't know. Maybe the person doesn't understand that that Stephen Graham Jones is is Indian. Right. right? I mean, so I don't do, like I don't know. I don't even know how to address that. You understand <laughs> what I'm saying, right? right, like, right. This isn't like somebody telling me or you to not call somebody right. Indian because I, I would understand that if an Indian person said, hey, man, listen, really? what you know, this is what we want, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. there. So the the responses to the review are really set the record straight. The first person just says, "You know, the author is Blackfeet Native American, right?" And then the second one says, um, "Did you research the author at all? And did you even read the book?" And that's kind of like the tone of um, mm -hmm. the responses. And so that so that brings up like the the general thought I have is um, obviously that person is just responding to a thing that they identify as bad without taking care to understand why it exists. Um, 
And I, I think in the comments somewhere, someone said that the person who made the comment is Native American or, or you know, mm-hmm. um, something like that. So, like, it was a it was a knee jerk reaction, but like w- when you look at it, it's like, um, it's just kind of dumb that it even happened because instead of trying to understand, they just reacted. Um, and and reading mm-hmm. the book, like, it if you read the book, you would see that that thing that they're fighting is definitely kind of the message of the book at some point. So, <laughs> I just thought it was funny that like yeah. those those types of things happen. I really wonder too. So I don't want to get into ratings. I've been scrolling through some of the one star reviews and I go, okay, all right. All right. I could see that. Yeah. Somebody was talking about the writing style and yeah, maybe, maybe it's not for you. That's fair. But then I'm looking at all the one star reviews that don't have any comments and I'm starting to wonder how much of that may or may not have to do specifically with the content not that review itself but the the mentality behind that that right do you know do you follow what i'm saying yep if this is the um you know uh shit what's that rotten tomatoes you know where somebody doesn't like something so they all splash over there and and give it a zero percent or however you write thumbs down or whatever so it winds up skewing the because I don't know, man, it has 1,500 ratings for a book that's been out, uh, you know, a week, a week and a half. Yeah. <laughs> and and I know that, you know, obviously there are copies and, and there are some comments that said they, they received an ARC copy. But it seems like a lot of reviews for something that's only been out um, a couple of weeks. Bookstores still aren't really in great shape. I mean, it's I don't think it's on the New York Times bestseller list. Dude. So I'm wondering. Don't yeah. forget, he's the Jordan Peele of horror literature, though. So, yeah, I'm going to try to forget that as soon as I can. <laughs> anyway. I uh, that's that I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, but yeah, <laughs> the thing that I got stuck on while because you directed me to kind of go there, and the first thing because I'm trying to figure I don't know if I've ever even actually looked at ratings on Goodreads, so I'm right. trying to find where it is. But the first thing that comes up is the reader Q and A, <laughs> and the first question says, "Is a dog harmed in this book?" Wow. And someone answers yes and is described graphically after, which, yes, yeah. yes, a dog is harmed in the book. Like, I, I think we may have even lightly touched on it, right? But I, I just thought it was funny. that <laughs> That's, and honestly, like, so maybe that's part of the, like, the pile of one-star reviews. You're going to have those people out there who their threshold for whatever thing that happens to be makes them rate the book the way they do. Um and that's fine. Like, I think that's valid. Like if you, if you just can't handle animal like cruelty or not animal cruelty, but like animals being injured, I mean, it's legitimate to, to rate it that way. Um, yeah. but at least you're going off of like an informed, you know, opinion of something. Sure. So. Um, here's, here's another one. <laughs> and I love it. When we go off on these tangents. Uh, um, it says, so this is another just a question. This isn't a review comment. This is like you can ask questions about the book. It says, is this book educational because I am in grade five and I am 11 years old? Mm. <laughs> My name is, you know, name redacted and I'm studying history of Pakistan. So if I could read this book, can you send me the copy? Can you send me a copy of the book? PDF, please. I almost want to send this to a fifth grader and be like, here you go, kid. Have fun. I mean, would you preface it by saying you're not going to learn much about Pakistan from this book? <laughs> well, that's that was the answer. It said um, 
Uh, it's not about historical Pakistan or India. The characters are modern right. day Native Americans. So, so somebody addressed it, but I just thought it was kind of a, that's a funny, funny. That's funny. I yeah. like that. Yeah. There's, and that's um, the thing, like you can't control how sane or insane the people who interact with your book are. You just have to kind of hope for the best. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, maybe I should start looking at Goodreads because I feel like <laughs> if I go to Amazon, there will not be anywhere near as much entertainment on this one. Which is funny because Amazon owns Goodreads. Um, yeah, it has 132 starred um, ratings versus, what did I say, like 3,000 or something? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. some ridiculous amount on, on Goodreads. Yeah, 1,479. All right, so I know you just gave me an inspiration for my next game when we have like a live interlude. Mm-hmm. Goodread, Goodreads comments is somehow going to be a part of it. Yeah, no kidding. All right, now I'm looking at the one at the one stars. An unreadable book masquerading as a bestseller. What a con game we have fallen for. I don't know how they do it, but so-called writers like Brett Easton Ellis, Donna Tart, and now Stephen Graham Jones have all got us fooled into thinking their books are somehow worth reading. Wow. I mean, that's just uh, mean. I took the bait, purchased this book based on its overwhelmingly positive reviews, mindless junk, DNF. What is DNF? Did not finish. Did not finish. There you go. Um, I like horror novels. Oh, man, you should have read all the way through Lenore. Um, afraid I abandoned this one. Okay. I was just looking to see if there was any any of the same type of, um, you know, it's similar issues to, to right. the Goodreads review. So, uh, yeah, that that just I felt that it was worth mentioning because I guess the the Native American aspect of the book could, you know, for some people be a sensitive topic, um, but this just emphasized the sensitivity of it in the dumbest way possible, instead of in a constructive way. Um, so yeah, it's goofy. I don't think Saga Press is going to recall the book. Probably, change, probably not. Change the yeah. All right, um, we should we should probably quit while we're ahead on yeah. this one. Um, here's what I'm pretty sure you're going to hear um, next week: an interview with Zoya Stage. I am super excited about this. Just want you guys to know that we love Zoya. Uh, happy uh, to have her on again to talk about Wonderland and catch up with her from uh, when we talked to her two years ago about Baby Teeth. And then we've, we've got two other interviews in the works. So if you've been following the pattern lately, you could probably figure <laughs> out who we're trying to get. So I'm not going to. So we have no hard commitments yet, um, but things are in the works. So probably a couple interviews in a row as Rob and I relax, rest our eyes from all the reading we've been doing. Um, where you're probably going to get an interlude in some interviews or some interviews or some interludes or something for the next few episodes. Yeah. And actually, I'm going to break in with some key updates because I haven't done that in a while. This is the 20th book we've reviewed this year. Um, so that's, that's something key mm -hmm. page update for 2020. We're at 6,199 pages with five months left in the, in the year. So I think that we could coast uh, another 4,000 out of that, right? 3,800 pages in five months. I hope so. I don't think that's going to be a problem. Personally, I'm at just under 7,000 pages because I read a few books outside the podcast. So, uh, yeah. yeah, 20 books. I'm feeling pretty good about that. I will add, um, although I am not reading a, a book because uh, uh, I, I'm now spending more time with audiobooks, 
I am listening to the audiobook for uh, the Traveling Vampire Show, which is the first Richard Lehman book I ever read. Um, and absolutely fell in love with that that writer. And I got to tell you, listening to the audiobook some 20 years later now feels just as good as me reading that book the first time. Sounds like an endorsement. If we had an Audible sponsorship, this is where he'd tell you to go listen to it on yes, Audible. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, that's exactly what happened. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's. I'd, I'd expected to read more books this year, but then my my work situation changed, and I'm spending quite literally like 15 times as much time in my car as I was previously. So reading extra books kind of fell to the wayside after the first three or four this year. That's uh, necessity is the mother of invention is what I'll say about that. Like you were thrown a curveball, and uh, you adapted as, as the best you could. Yeah. So uh, come back next week. So I stage interview until then I'm Olivia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.